0: our way through an Old Testament book. Uh, It's the book of Exodus. And so if you've been around the Bible at all, um, you'll know that there are some kind of um, high uh, watermark passages and narratives that are akin to children's Sunday school passages, the parting of the Red Sea being one of the climactic ones. But we're we're working consecutively through uh, that book. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to open that or turn that on now uh, to Exodus chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, that's totally fine we've we 've got the words projected for you so you 'll be able to follow along. Uh, we do love to give away free Bibles so if you 're here as a visitor and you don't have a, a Bible or you 'd like a Bible from the version that I read and preach from we 've got those available uh, in the lobby for your taking there we 're going to pick up this morning uh, in exodus chapter five i 'm going to read the entire um, chapter uh, and then also verse one of chapter six so let 's go ahead and uh, let 's listen to, to god 's word before before we actually uh, read the word, uh, let me just remind you what 's going on very briefly. Um, Moses has now received the charge from the Lord to go uh, to Egypt um, and to declare to the king of egypt Pharaoh uh, to to let his people go and uh, Last week was kind of the transition passage where Moses left the wilderness. Uh, He's supposed to be connecting now with his brother Aaron, they're supposed to be taking the elders to Pharaoh to now uh, have this interaction with the king of Egypt, and so that's what we'll witness today. Beginning in chapter 5 of Exodus, reading through, through the chapter, this is the word of the Lord. "'Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, "'Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness.'" But Pharaoh said, "'Who's the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go?' "'I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go.' Then they said, "'The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword.' But the king of Egypt said to them, "'Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens.' Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? And then the foremen of the people of Israel came and they cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. And the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met with Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and you have put a a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, "O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. This is the word of the Lord, let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we desperately need your help now. Lord, unless your Spirit works in our hearts and in our minds to help us to see and to believe, Lord, this will remain some ancient story of the past that has nothing to do with our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would would make your Word alive to us by your Spirit, and that you would help us now as we engage with your text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, a number of years ago, um, I didn't, didn't track down the, the publishing date. A number of years ago, there was a book published uh, by an author named Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, the, the name of the book is The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, if you haven't read that, I would, I would, I would commend it to your reading. Um, but in this book, the author, um, who was an associate professor at Syracuse, uh, she was she was tenured um, as an Engli- in the English department, so she she had clout. Um, she did studies um, in um, uh, gay and lesbian issues. Um, she was a, a lesbian. She was in a lesbian relationship with a woman, um, an adjunct prof- professor at another university, and and her book kind of tells this narrative story of her engagement with with the Christian faith, um, and and. You know, I will I'll read the book. Um, my my point today is um, she she had this quote in the book, and and she's beginning, and this is early on in the book. She's beginning to talk about um, some of the shortcomings that she saw in Christianity, um, and one of those shortcomings that she saw in her engagement with Christianity was this simplistic treatment of sin, um, and how uh, and how Christians kind of treated it listen to this little quote here she she writes she said um, this is the author speaking about her view of christians and christianity she said christians always seemed like bad thinkers to me it seemed that they could maintain their worldview only because they were sheltered from the world's real problems like the material structures of poverty and violence and racism christians always seemed like bad readers to me too They appeared to use the Bible in a way that Marxists would call vulgar, that is, common, or in order to bring the Bible into a conversation to stop the conversation, not deepen it. The Bible says always seemed to me like a mantra that invited everyone to put his or her brain on hold. The Bible says was the big pause before the conversation stopped. Their catchphrases and cliches were and are equally off-putting. Jesus is the answer seemed to me then and now like a tree without a root. The Bible says Jesus is the answer is like a tree without a root. It's a fundamentally one-dimensional way of looking um, at a very complex um, world that we live in. And we are very complex, multi-dimensional people. And, And what I think What I think Butterfield has caught on to and what I want us to catch on to um, as a church as we look at this passage today is how we as Christians and the church, broadly speaking, have done a a very poor job um, explaining sin, what we would call sin, uh, how it works, uh, the nature of it, the depth of it. you know, by and large, I think if you've been around Christianity in the church for any amount of time, um, you have seen sin represented as um, doing bad things, or, or maybe maybe you have a little bit more of a nuanced views, view of sin and, and, and that could be um, being more bad than you are good. And so kind of looking at sin as kind of on the weight of scales, like I'm I'm more bad more often times do I choose bad than I choose good and so we kind of that's how we really view our sinfulness? Or, or maybe maybe you're here today and you're like a tried and true um, Presbyterian. We're uh, a Presbyterian church if you didn't know that. So for those of you that didn't know that, um, you know, you, you, when you think of sin, you think of um, things like our catechism. So there's, there's a question in our catechism that says, what is sin? Uh, and if you're a good Presbyterian, you have it memorized. And the answer is, sin is any want of conformity to or lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. So basically, it's doing bad things. Um, see, Exodus chapter 5, um, there's, there's a ton going on here, but my big takeaway from this passage is I think it gives us a dark picture of, of actually what sin is and what sin does and what sin feels like. And so I, I think it, it moves into that multidimensional kind of way of looking at sin as, as something much broader and much deeper um, and much more effective than you've been a bad boy, you've been a bad girl. Um, so here's, here's, here's kind of my take on it. I, I, I think there, there is a, a metaphorical painting of the nature of sin and the heavy weight of it that is embodied in the enslavement of Israel, okay? So, and, and hear me, when I say it's a metaphor, like I'm not denying the historicity of this passage, like this really happened. And so, you know, the stories in the Old Testament are not just metaphors for us to try to understand life. Like I'm not doing that. But, I, but, I, but I, what I want us to do is to feel the weight of the situation of the Israelites and for us to liken that to the sinfulness that weighs down our heavy hearts. So here's, here's the three things we're going to look at today, drawing out of this passage. I want us to see three things about sin. I want us to see how sin blinds us. I want us to see why sin burdens us. And then I want us to see when sin is banished from us. So let's first look at how sin blinds us, largely looking at the first five verses of the passage. Um both parties are guilty on, on both ends of this narrative. So we've kind of got Moses on the one hand. So this is Israel, right? God's people, right? The ones that are they're now believing in the promise that God would deliver them. So, so Moses is guilty. I'll, I'll, I'll unfold that here in a second. And Pharaoh, of course, is the bad guy, right? Like we, we already know that. Like you don't even have to read the Bible to probably realize that Pharaoh somehow is going to turn out to be the bad guy. But, but both parties are guilty. Think first about Moses. You, you don't catch this necessarily on first reading. Um, I've been thinking about this passage all week, so I'll, I'll do what little of enlightenment that I can do. But Moses does not do what God told him to do. If you remember back in chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, but God told him to do a few things specifically when it came to going to address Pharaoh. One of those was that he was to bring his brother Aaron, which he did, and also the elders. He didn't do that. So chapter 5, it's just Moses and Aaron. So it's just kind of a a caveat of obedience, right? Okay, well, I brought half the people or a quarter of the people, you said, God. Um, He also doesn't say what God told him to say. It doesn't come out plainly in the, in the English, but um, the way Moses said it is, let my people go, um, and it was um, a little passive, whereas it should have been much more aggressive. And so there's kind of nuanced language. Maybe Moses is just being politically correct for Pharaoh's sake, you know. Um, he doesn't refer to God the way that God told him to refer to him. He uses kind of the national name of God, God of Israel, Again, just a, a vague attempt at being PC, politically correct for these folks. So there's a number of different ways in which Moses is blinded by his own sinfulness, even though they're respectable ways. Right? They're not like heinous. I mean, he did what God told him to do, but it, you know, it wasn't vulgar. Um, but he was still blinded. He was still impaired for his vision of what obedience would look like. And Pharaoh, of course, Pharaoh, I mean, I resonate with him. Pharaoh essentially just says, who's the Lord? Like he says, you know, I'm, I'm calling the shots here. He says, I've never heard of this one. I don't know who the Lord is. Why would I obey him? And so, I mean, he just utterly, just completely undermines God's authority. Uh, he's, just, he's very honest about it, but he, he denies and undermines God's authority. And I think, I think both Moses and Pharaoh um, tell us something about our sin and the way it blinds us, namely this. It tells us that to be under any authority outside of ourselves is to be enslaved. And so certainly Pharaoh got that, like, I'm the king. But even Moses, like, he was still blinded to the fact that that God's authority would be what's best for him, even if his circumstances didn't seem like that fit well. Like, surely Pharaoh wasn't going to receive this news well, and there were probably going to be implications for him. Um, But the truth is that authority um, is not a restrictive boundary that keeps you from being free. It's actually the very source that God designed for you to experience true freedom under. I, I think, silly illustration, but if you have a brick wall kind of dividing this room, we'll do this. If there was a brick wall dividing this room. On either side of that wall is freedom, right? But it's the moment that you attempt to barrel through that wall, essentially saying, I need no authority, is the moment that freedom is lost. And so what happens is, Both Moses and Pharaoh and and us, by extension, begin to learn this, that sin blinds us from seeing the loving authority of God. Um, The Lord is the antithesis to Pharaoh in this passage, obviously. Pharaoh, bad ruler. The Lord, good ruler. Okay, You're going to be under one of them. Choose the right one. Um, and so Pharaoh's, you know, his, his mantra sounds something like this, um, and, I, and I think we say it too. It sounds something like obeying God is optional. Um, it sounds something like obeying God when it doesn't impede on my authority, right? When we can kind of just shoulder to shoulder on some things. Uh, obeying God when it's convenient, not when it's inconvenient to me or my lifestyle. It's not suitable to me. I think that's Pharaoh's bent, right? Like obeying God, generally a good idea, but let's not get crazy with that stuff. Uh, with, Moses, with Moses bent, um, I think his is, his is kind of that, um, the veneer of obedience that looks good. Um, it's 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 kind of like it's blended obedience, like it, it looks like obedience, like he did what the Lord was saying, but it's still nuanced, right? It's still perverted and twisted by me, um, and so you know, for us, I think that means having the Lord um, rule most area of, areas of your life, but not all of them. You know, there's a, there's a few little things where, not not as much like. Workplace? Not really, Lord. I'll take care of. I'll take care of that area. Uh, you know, personal finances. Certainly, that's uncomfortable to let the Lord get into our wallets. Like that is. That's. I'll take care of that. Um, you know, friendships or romance. Like, you know, Lord, Bible's a little, it's a little archaic in those areas. You know, like, mm, I think I'll kind of. I think I'll kind of nuance that a little bit to my liking. And so I think what's happening here, and what happens in our lives, is sin begins to blind us. And when that happens, it begins begins to get traction, right? And that's when sin begins to burden us. So let's look, let's look secondly at why sin burdens us. Um, So so what Pharaoh commands in response to Moses' request, Moses' request was: let's go have a feast, a sacrifice feast out in the wilderness. And Pharaoh's like, okay, you guys have too much time on your hands, right? It's like, you know, your employer sees you, you know, doing, I don't know, I don't do games, but doing social media at work. He's like, you need, you need to do some more work. So what he does is, is Pharaoh says, no more straw. We're not going to collect the, the, the elements that you need to build the bricks that we're commanding from you. You've got to go get it on your own. Um, so straw—it was the binding agent. It's kind of important here. It was—it was the binding agent in the in the bricks, and they absolutely had to have it. And Pharaoh's response was, "Listen, your um, resources are decreased, but your quota level's the same, and so the demand was more. The weight becomes heavier, right? Um, and so the thing that the Israelites needed most." straw, was the thing that they had the least of. And um, it's, it, is, it is the picture of sin and its demand over us. I mean, it is, it is the picture of the nature of sin to demand more and more and more and more from us. It's what sin does. It is relentless. It will not let us go until it becomes our master and it owns us. Um, verse 13, the, so it's kind of the trickle-down effect, right? It comes from Pharaoh to the taskmasters, to the foremen, to, to the Israelites, right? And so verse 13, here's the taskmasters' response. They were urgent, Now, you and I, that word doesn't mean anything, but in the Hebrew, it meant they were pressing. They were crushing. In other words, they got news that Pharaoh demanded the same amount of quota, decreased the resources, and they began crushing everyone around them to perform for them. And oh, is that a picture of sin. Sin begins to wreak absolute utter chaos and havoc in this work environment, and it does it in in all environments. It does it in in relationships. I mean, let's let's put it like this. Um, Sin burdens us by demanding more than we can provide on our own. That is the nature of sin. It demands more from us, and we, humanly speaking, try to muster up enough. And so we're going we're to do a case study here in a minute. I'm going to tease this out in real life. But, but what, what you need to see is how sin, when it becomes heavy on your own heart, it begins pressing and crushing others around you too. And so let's, let's, let's just do a case study real quick. Let's, just, let's do marriage. Um, I know not everybody's married here, but I, I still think we can take away from it. Um, why is marriage so hard? Um, please don't answer all that. <laughs> your wife's next to you, guys. You don't want to. You don't want to do that. Um, the reason marriage is so hard is because there's two sinners involved in it. Okay, and um, there there's a reason why some marriages are harder than others. Um, and, and here's why. Um, if if you have a person in a marriage um, who is a sinner, in fact, let me let me restate that. Every person is a sinner. That is not up for debate. That's the assumption I'm making on the front end of this. But if you have people in a marriage and there's somebody in the marriage who doesn't believe that, they don't think they need desperate help from outside, they think they're really internally self-sufficient on their own, what will they do to the other person? Crush them. Because they're better than them, right? They're not the ones that need help, the other person does. Or or by God's grace, let's say both people in the marriage admit, fully admit, we're both sinners, we're both messed up, we both need help. But only one of them desperately pursues help by grace. And so, in other words, one of them sees themselves as a sinner but does nothing about it to change themselves. What will happen there? They will crush the other person. And so what, what we begin to see is this really simple principle, and and, and that is this. In order for life to work, in, in, in marriage, and in, in every realm, so broaden it up now. In order for life to work, death must happen. Um, there's a word that we don't use all that often. Some of you do, which is weird. Um, but... Um, the Puritans used to love this word. It was a Christian word. It was, very, it was in the vernacular of the day. And it was the word mortification. Uh, the word mortification simply means to put something to death. And when used in Christian context, it was, it was referred to in putting sin to death. And so, again, not many of us frequent in that type of language. Um, we might talk about, you know, how we're struggling and we want to do better and those things. But, but, but I, I really think there's something to recover about this word Mortification. In fact, one of the one of the Puritans, John Owen, would put it this way, referring to sin. He would say, "Be killing sin, or it will be killing you." See, in marriage, just going to tease that one out just for a second. When two really big sinners are involved in it, but when they're committed to pursuing outside help, that's when things work well. Um, and, and by outside help, I, I don't mean professional help, though that could be part of it. I'm talking about divine grace. Like knowing I am not sufficient on my own. And So marriage works best when sin is put to death. That's, that's really the principle um, That because what's happening is this web and this weight of sin is crushing people all around them. So how does that happen? Like, like, you know, brass tacks. Like, what are we talking about here, Adam? Like, if, if that is my condition, if I'm weighted down by sin and it crushes me and I crush others because of it, how, what do I do about that? Well, let's look at when sin is banished, kind of at the closing um, sections of, of chapter 5 and opening of 6. Um, I went to college a little while ago. I don't like to date myself, but I went to college for a long time, so you won't be able to figure out how old I am anyway. Um, But when I went to college, uh, we used to have the college um, catalogs. Remember those? I, they don't still print those, right? I mean, these were like in the newspaper type of paper. They would have all of the courses listed with all of the ridiculous, um, you know, numbers that you had to figure out the number system. And what you would do is you would you would take your catalog, you'd get your highlighter out, and you'd start building your schedule. Right? You'd be like, yep. I'm going to knock out Monday, Wednesday, Friday, have off Tuesday, Thursday. I'll be done by two. It's fantastic. And so you, you take the catalog, you lay it out, you build your schedule according to plan. You, take, you wait in line at the registrar's office. I don't even think we had computers in. I don't know. But I, I think you literally had to take the catalog up. You would tell her, I want course you know, uh, EC101, and she would type it in and tell you if it was available. And you'd be there, like, tapping your highlighter, like, come on, tell me it's good. And she'd be like, oh, yeah, that one's one's already filled. And so by the time you're done with the registrar, you now have all-night classes every day of the week, uh, and, and, you know, it's just a mess. Like, you go in with this prearranged plan for your life and how it's going to pan out this semester, and it's really utterly destroyed. Um. You see, the frustration of the plan not unfolding the way you prescribe it is very real. And I think we do the same thing with God. Um, I think the Israelites were doing the same thing with God. It was like they were taking their catalog and saying, God, save us like this. Right? Like, deliver us immediately and pain-free if possible. And the Lord doesn't Fulfill their wishes. Why can't you just deliver us like this? Moses is down in verse 1. Why did you send me, God? You're not doing what you said you would do. And then God gives him the answer that none of us wanted to hear, and I'm certain Moses didn't either. He says that I will use the sinfulness of sin to accomplish my will. I will use Pharaoh and his hand to bring about my purpose. Um, that's not the way we would prescribe it. Like, let, me, let me be very clear. Um, God could have, in an instant, delivered his people. Like instantaneously, instantaneously, he could have swept in, and they could have been delivered. From all heartache, from all struggle, from all pain, and he could have done that in our lives too, but he didn't. He chose to use the struggle to bring about his purpose, and he's using Pharaoh for the very same thing. And so, so what is God doing with that? What is he doing with that in our lives? Like, why? Why is that the case? And here's the good news. The good news is that what God is doing in your life, believer, is he is fully and finally removing sin from you. He will fully and ultimately and climactically eradicate all sinfulness in the world when he so chooses to do it. And... What it, what it does is is it brings light and it brings understanding into what Jesus came to do um, because Jesus came to deal with your greatest problem the weight of sin. see Jesus didn't come to pave a life of easiness for you. Um, Jesus didn't come um, to kind of make everything, rainbows and unicorns and cotton candy. like Jesus came to remove your biggest problem and that is the weight of sin. See, what we believe about Jesus is that he is fully God and fully man. And so when Jesus lived on earth, he fell under God's authority. He, he said what we all ought to be saying is that the best place for my life to be Is under the loving authority of God. And He perfectly lived that life, the one that you and I can't, the one that we are utterly incapable of living, to perfectly satisfy all of God's demands over the way we ought to be living our lives, summarized in love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind all of your strength and to love your neighbor likewise. None of us do that, but Jesus did. And so he takes that record that he won for you and he gives it to you by faith. And so the believer now, though still sinful, is all get out, is now reckoned righteous in the sight of God. That record is yours to keep. And he not only did that, but then he died the death that your flawed record should have earned. So in the ways that you don't love the Lord your God and you don't love your neighbor, Jesus took all of the weight on his own back. The wooden cross is the place where the weight of your sin crushed the Son of God. And so the believer gets relief not just from the penalty of sin, like, you, if you've been around the church or Christianity, you know that. Like, we talk about forgiveness and, and all, of, all of the judgment kind of stuff. But you, believer, don't just get relief from the penalty of it, but also the power of it. It no longer has to demand everything from you. You no longer live under the burden of law. You're now free under God's authority. So the kicker of the passage is actually in verse 5, and I kind of want to conclude with this. Pharaoh says this. He says, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. That word is Sabbath. Pharaoh's saying, don't give them Sabbath from their burdens. Don't give them rest. And it makes a whole lot of sense about what Jesus came to do by designing us to be free from our burdens, to no longer be enslaved by them. So, what, is, what does this mean um, for Monday morning for you? Let me just I just really want to land this thing on street level. Um, the news that God in Christ has found a way for you to be relieved from both the, pow- the penalty and the power of sin ought to change the entire landscape of your life. Like, like all of it. So when you walk into work um, tomorrow and, and and the burdens of, of, of work fall on you, um, they're still there, right? God has not removed the struggle. Like the struggle's still very real. But now all of a sudden, you're living in the light and the freedom of the good news that God has rescued from that bondage. Or when you go home and your marriage, um, you know, the, the perpetual work of marriage feels heavy and you want to escape by drinking or Netflix binging or hiking or whatever your mechanism is, to kind of numb that the gospel frees you to engage in it instead or our parenting when you know the kids are just just at you right they never it never stops a lot of us I mean you heard the trampling a lot of us have young children who demand so much from us they take it all I'm not calling them sin, but man, they're heavy, right? It's very heavy and demanding work. But the good news frees us to not be enslaved and weighted down by that. That's how Christianity works. And some of you are here today, and you don't have that yet. Maybe you're new to Christianity, or you've never heard a message of grace before, but I, I want to just close um, for, for all of us, and especially if you're here today and you don't know what that's like, um, with the words of Jesus. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 says this. He says, come to me. Come to me. All of you, everyone who, is, who labors and is heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sabbath, from your burdens. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest, Sabbath, for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Consider that an invitation for everyone today. Let's pray. Father, the reality and ravaging nature of our sin is sometimes a heavy thing to think about. Lord, oftentimes we, we do want to just numb ourselves to it and avoid it. And um, Lord, I pray that you, would, that you would enable us to confront our sin with the good news of your son, Jesus. Lord, that we would recall his righteous record and not our own. And that we would rest in his atoning death and not our own sacrifices. And that we would find light and freedom and enjoyment in those good things. Lord, help us to escape the heavy weight of sin, not from something that we can do, but because of everything that you have done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.